This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Hey guys, welcome to the Hero Academy podcast, the place where you can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes, people such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are all heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those that have chosen to serve our society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here, you'll learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their purpose. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing, things that you could do to make some extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you'll learn from people like you that were working full time but still found the time to create a course grow a big team, create a coaching program, a large audience, or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories, and how they overcame their burnout that they were facing. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. Carpe diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. I'm your host and coach, Super Dave. Let's go. We are live. Welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy. I have my brother, William, recently retired from the FBI, and tell me your story now. You heard mine over the last 10, 10 15, I think it was 10 minutes exactly. <laughs> now, tell, tell us your story. All right. Welcome to this week's episode of the Hero Academy podcast, where we have my brother, William, recently retired from the FBI. I am very, very happy to connect with you, and I appreciate all of your years of service. I always say this to the person live. I want to give you your roses while you're still here and say thank you for your years of service in the military and also in the FBI. How many years did you do in the FBI, by the way? I was in the FBI for 23 years, and then prior to that, I was a naval officer for seven, a ship driver. And uh, I've always been fascinated by government work, but more specifically with law enforcement since I was about five years old. That was always my dream to get into the FBI, and that dream came true through a lot of hard work and a lot of people standing behind me and pushing me in the right direction, family members and loved ones. The, FBI, I just retired. the FBI was always your number one choice? Always my number one choice, going back to 1975 when I was watching the show, the FBI with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., my grandmother would always put me in front of that show and change the channel with a spoon. And I would sit there and just uh, was fascinated by the FBI and in general law enforcement. But that was my number one choice. Yeah. Why the FBI? Well, the FBI is very, very diverse. Now, I've always been interested in a lot of different uh, law enforcement agencies. But in the FBI, you work 200 plus violations of, uh, of, of federal violations. We had talked before about yeah, crimes against children. You work crimes against children. You work narcotics. You work kidnappings. You work antiquities thefts. Uh, it is the fascinating, most fascinating work you could ever imagine. Um, I started out working violent crimes, and then after 9/11, and the violent crimes entailed bank robberies. Back then, 1999, if you weren't working bank robberies, you weren't working anything because that was the FBI's number one priority. That was kidnappings, bank robberies, hostage takings, and so on. And then after the planes hit, 
my supervisor walked in and said, we don't have enough terrorism agents. So you are now a counterterrorism agent. And I said, I don't know anything about terrorism. And he responded, well, that's why books were invented. Pack up your, your, your cubicle and move to the terrorism squad. So I've been working terrorism since about 2001, since the planes hit. And spent 12 of my 23 years overseas in various countries, like most recently Pakistan. I was there for a year, overseeing the FBI's office there. Prior to that, I was in Switzerland for three and a half years, overseeing the FBI's operation in Switzerland. And then I was a counterterrorism squad supervisor in San Diego for a bit, uh, worked terrorism in Iraq, terrorism in Afghanistan, and uh, was in Athens, Greece. I was the head of the FBI's office there for almost five years. So I've seen just about every violation the FBI investigates by virtue of being overseas. So to answer your question, it was the diversity of it. So you just made me think of the CIA. It seems like there's a lot of overlap with the CIA and the FBI. I know it's they have very different roles of what what they do. Uh, can you just explain that difference? And, and have you worked with those guys? extensively overseas. So the main difference between the FBI and the CIA, we're both intelligence agencies. The FBI is a law enforcement agency, but also an intelligence agency. But the FBI has uh, uh, the main, their main jurisdiction is the United States, whereas the CIA, they run the show overseas for intelligence operations. So as you can imagine, when working overseas, whether it's in law enforcement and intelligence operations, you have to closely coordinate with the CIA. And when you're passing information, when you're conducting investigations, whether it's a law enforcement matter or it, it segues into the intelligence realm, you have to have close and continued cooperation with them. And there's actually a memorandum of understanding between us. If this situation exists, you will share. If this situation exists, you will not share. And you have to follow that to the letter. Um, so that is how cooperation occurs overseas. And it works in reverse in the United States because they are not allowed, they don't have a mandate to operate in the United States. So they have to closely coordinate anything there with us. So that That's in, cool. in, in some, it is, it is, but it is fascinating work to be able to work overseas. It's twice as difficult to get things done overseas as a law enforcement officer as it is in the United States because you don't have any power. You have no law enforcement power. So, for instance, being in Switzerland for three years, you're working in an embassy with a lot of other agencies, but you can't go out in the street and arrest somebody. Uh, so you coordinate with your host nation, the law enforcement, the Swiss police or the uh, head intelligence service. And you need to say, hey, I have a kidnapping underway or a terrorist plot that is about to go. This is what we need to do. And then use them as your mechanism to get things done. And if you don't have close and continued cooperation, and if you're not good at liaison and building relationships, you cannot function overseas. Did uh, human trafficking become like a bigger highlight in your last couple of years uh, as it relates to counterterrorism? Yes. And I can give you some specific examples. Um, I was in Athens, Greece from about 2009 until about 2013. And we saw a phenomenon, you know, with the Middle East starting to erupt and things becoming disorganized there. In Greece, they were dealing with 130,000 immigrants a year, most of which were just looking for a better way of life. But having done time in Iraq and Afghanistan and seen uh, what was coming this way, I was very concerned about that. So I engaged with the Hellenic National Police, the Greek, the, basically the Greek FBI. And uh, I'd said, based on what I've seen in Iraq, I saw the rise of ISIS when I was there. We didn't know what to call it at the time, but we knew it was going to be something. 
And we all looked at each other when we were dealing with these jihadists in Iraq, and a lot of them would say, I'm coming to get you. You can't hold me forever. And that scared us to death. And we didn't know what to call it at the time, but it was ISIS. So fast forwarding to Greece, when I saw all of these individuals coming in from various countries like Syria, Iraq, and, and, and some other countries of concern, I raised that security concern with the Greeks. And I said, there's something that we have to do. We need to stack the deck in our favor, and that's biometrics. So I helped the Greeks stand up their own biometrics program, and it actually, you know, that entailed putting biometric platforms at key locations. Uh, the Greeks have 300 islands, and we asked ourselves, well, which islands are these individuals coming in uh, most often? And then we strategically placed those mobile platforms, and it was successful. It actually detected criminals and terrorists trying to get, enter Greece uh, who are further interested in going on into Europe and so on. The main thing there, protect the U.S. homeland, but at the same time, protect our allies our European partners, anyone that we're working with from a terrorist attack, because if we help them, we're helping ourselves. When you say biometrics, the primary thing that I think of, my limited knowledge, is facial rec technology. Um, would you say that China has the best facial rec tech, or, or, or is it the U.S.? Is it, is it Las Vegas, Nevada? <laughs> Uh, it, that is hard to say. You know, that technology is advancing so quickly. I could not, I can't articulate who has the best talk technology, truth be told. It seems like it's evolving every week and it's getting better and better. And there seems to be a race uh, for that sort of technology. Um, but I really can't uh, say that China has better technology than we do or the Europeans and so on and so forth. I just know that um, in the square miles of Las Vegas, Nevada, you, you've been to Vegas before? A few times, yes. I know that their security is tip-top in the nation. I know that their cameras, like if you're a cheat, let's just say you're a cheat and you get kicked out of one, they'll pick you up the minute you walk into another casino, the major casinos. And that's it's been that way for years from what I understand and they are light years ahead of anyone else in terms of facial recognition artificial intelligence and so on i think they invented it in vegas yeah yeah yeah. i just something that i think is really cool the explosion of artificial intelligence i follow it pretty closely uh, i consider myself somewhat of a futurist because i love star trek and i feel like we're living in the future right now with all of the creations i i tell my kids i'm going to live at least another hundred years, because as soon as we get the nanobots, I'm getting them injected into my body. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting the cyborg glasses. I'm getting all the implants so that I have access to the internet. I, I watched a video recently on Instagram. This guy had a, uh, it almost looked like a Bluetooth microphone headset. And it was reading his thoughts that he was uh, Google searching into Google. And I sent that out to my kids and I said, you know, in the next five to 10 years, that's going to be the size of a, of a dime. Mm -hmm. Like right now, it was a big white piece that kind of went behind his ear. It was kind of attached to uh, maybe his spinal cord. It looked very much like a cyborg. <laughs> but I imagine within the next five to 10 years, that'll be this. And, you know, Elon Musk is working on neural net. So uh, it's for quadriplegics and people who can't speak right now, but eventually, you know, we'll all have those, the people that choose to have them. <laughs> I asked myself, where are we going to be 
in five years. And you mentioned Star Trek. I, I was a huge fan of Star Trek, you know, when I was growing up and even today. But the technology they were using at the time of the communicators, like, there's no way we're going to have anything like that, where you just flip the thing open and you talk to someone who's a thousand miles away and look at where we are now. We're look way beyond we that. Yeah. So where are we going to be 10 years from now? I can only imagine in terms of technology. And it's only it's only accelerating the speed, the speed at which these things are coming out. Like uh, there is a actor who's invested in hologram technology. And, you know, they they had Tupac on the stage after he died. They had him on a stage at Coachella. And that's only going to be. I don't know if you, you ever watch uh, Star Wars, how they have those uh, those holograms pop up and you're talking to the person. Mm -hmm. We're going to see that within five years. On our cell phone, you're going to be able to put your phone down on on the uh, countertop and there'll be a little hologram pop up of us having this conversation. It's just incredible the times that we live in right now. Of that, I have no doubt. And I, like I said, I, I cannot imagine where we're going to be in 10 years or even five for that matter. Do you see any of this? applying to uh law enforcement like were there things that would i want to phrase it properly were there things that like was there tech that you can't really discuss was there like s secret stuff yeah and that was another point because you know in the fbi most of my world at least half of it was in the classified realm and there are things yes. that i just can't discuss yes but i will tell i like to back up what technology and talk about what technology was like when i started out as a new yes. agent Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I tell the story to everyone. When I graduated the FBI Academy in 1999, I showed up at the bank robbery squad. And like I said, back then, bank robbery, if you weren't working that, that was the FBI's number one priority. You weren't working anything. So the newer agent or the older agents, you know, they didn't really accept me all that much. But I showed up with my gun, my badge. I didn't get a Nextel. Everybody, you had to earn your cell phone back then. <laughs> so I got a pager. Not uh -huh. only get one pager, I got two. Uh -huh. so my gun, my badge. And then I see these computers on the desks that were turned off and no one was using them. And I'm a tinker. I'm a geek. People call me the, the nerd in the bureau. And I turned the computer on and one of the older agents came up and said, what are you doing? I said, well, we could use this computer to our advantage and, you know, you know, analytics and various other things. And said, turn that thing off. All you need is a badge, a gun, and those shoes to kick indoors and run. That's all you need to do this job. So I was dissuaded from actually looking at technology. But even then, I was always like, all right, how can we use this? How can we use that? And I remember the day I got my first cell phone. But prior to that, I had to pull over with pocket change when I had to call you know, investigative updates and put the, the coins in and call back to the supervisor, get out of my car. And this is the investigative update. We just had a bank robbery, and these are the details. When I was first on patrol, they gave us what was called a spin number, and you would punch in pound uh, these four digits, and you could call you could call on any payphone out to uh, out to your precinct or out to an outside line if you, if you needed to. And I just look at where we've we've come so far.
Yes. And technology in law enforcement is our best friend. We, the Bureau, were always looking for new inventive ways to use technology to our advantage. It wasn't always that way prior to 9-11. After 9-11, we had to change. We had to evolve. We had to adopt and embrace that new technology and utilize it to our advantage. You know, various databases that we now use. You know, you can, you know, search one name on one database and then you can, you know, um, you know, telephone numbers, names, and I won't get into the details of it, but it's all packed into one. And it makes your life a lot easier in terms of solving crimes and conducting analysis. And analysis is the most important uh, thing in terms of solving crime, as you know, so you can map out organizations and so on, find out who's connected to who. But the FBI has really, really evolved in terms of its ability to use technology to its advantage. And it's recognized that. And when I left, they were only improving and improving and improving and making it better. But from that, from shoe leather and a gun to where we are now, we are light years ahead, or, or at least you can say when I retired, we were. Do you have a favorite investigation, a favorite uh, story that you love to tell? There, there are a few, but the investigation that really jumps out at me is my first big case. I was on the uh, violent crime squad in San Diego, and this was in 2001. And you know that you've been a rookie. When you go into the squad bay, you have to prove yourself, yes. right? They kind of make you do you. all. Everyone looks at you. Yeah, they look at you weird. They don't let you get involved in things. So everything they didn't want to do, they let William Peterson do. Like, you know, crawl under the house and where the spiders and bugs are during a search or on a, a you know, a, a crimes against children case. You're the one going through all the videos to look for evidence. And those were the sort of things that I had to do. But I didn't really mind. But at the same time, in addition to the bank robberies and everything else, we were dealing with a, a whole swath of kidnappings along the southwest border. And a lot of these were Mexican drug cartels kidnapping individuals who had crossed them, holding from ransom, and then killing them anyway, even after they got the ransom. So I was observing senior agents working these complex kidnapping cases, sometimes for six months, only to lose the victim. And uh, after I'd been on the squad for about a year and a half, uh, we got the call that uh, there were two uh, 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 wives in San Diego and their husbands had flown to Kenya and they hadn't heard from them. And they'd been receiving strange emails from them um, that indicated that things were not right. So my squad supervisor assigned me to the case and he says, it looks like we have a hostage taking investigation, possibly. Uh, drive out there to the victim wives' homes and figure out what's happening. So I did, and they started explaining things to me. You know, my uh, you know one I won't mention their names, but uh, there were two individuals who had met in San Diego and they decided to go into business together, and they cultivated this business called the Catfish.com in an effort to get investors to uh, invest in cat, catfish ponds in Europe. That was their plan and export it. And they'd been communicating with these individuals in Kenya for several months. And it looked like a legitimate business deal. So both of them decided to go to Kenya to finalize the business deal. And the would-be kidnappers even went so far as to buy their tickets. So it all looked legit. So these two get on a plane from San Diego. They fly all the way to Nairobi, Kenya. And they land. And they're picked up. And there's a lady at the airport with a placard with their names on it. Put them in a van. And they drive them to uh, a location that was very, very sketchy in and around Nairobi. They drive in uh, to the driveway, the gates close behind them, and they both walk in and they open the door and they're surrounded by several Nigerians. And the head of the kidnapping ring comes out and he says, you are now 
the guests of Mr. Augustine and Nwanga. He was the head of the kidnapping ring. And you can see this on A&E. It's all, it's broadcast. And if you want to be released, you have to pay. And at that point, they transitioned to a third American who had been there for six months and his hair was down to his shoulders. And, uh, and they pointed at him and they said, say your speech. And he said, my name is so-and-so. I've been here for six months. And if you want to be released, you will pay them. They took them all upstairs into one room, laid them on a dirty mattress, made them take cold showers, uh, turned on blaring music. And then after they thought they had them broken down, made them send emails to their wives in San Diego saying, we need money to finalize this business deal. And one of the victims was smart enough to slip in a code, I love you too. And he was an atheist. So his wife knew that there was something wrong. She called us. I went out there. And of course, I believed them and then put recording devices on the phone. That's standard operating procedure for any kidnapping. And um, at the time, I was telling myself, I'm, I'm working in a squad in San Diego with senior agents who are losing their victims 13 miles away. And now these individuals are thousands of miles away. And I don't have the experience in this. How am I going to make this work? How am I going to bring these victims home? That was the biggest challenge I was facing as a new agent. And one of the things that I noticed listening to the calls of the kidnappers back to the wives, for instance, they would call at a certain time. The wives would call. I need to speak to my husband and um, and just see how he's doing. And they were still trying to portray that this was a legitimate business deal, these hostage takers. And they were just arrogant on the phone. When I listened to the recordings, they were very, very arrogant and very, very overconfident. And I said, that is a weakness. Arrogance is a weakness. That might come into handy at some point in time. There was another problem that we had was one of the victims had a heart condition and he'd only taken enough medication for a 10-day period of time. Wow. So I knew the it was absolutely, um, um, it, it was critical that we recover them as quickly as possible. But at the end of the day, the hostage takers are in control, not you. And they wanted the money and they wanted it sent via Western Union. They gave us precise instructions. And they wanted it sent to a certain person in Kenya. And the problem is the FBI doesn't pay ransom demands. It's up to the family if they want to do that. So I went to the wives and I said, the FBI is not going to pay. But if you want to pay, we will use that as bait. And they wanted something like $50,000. And I said, we're not going to send it all. And the fact the wives didn't have $50,000, they only had seven. So you give me that money and we'll use that and we'll see if we can flush them out. And even that was a risk. Um, I remember that day going to the bank with one of the wives and she withdrew her money and she gave it to me and the bank manager came out and said, Mrs. So-and-so, are you okay? And then I had to identify myself as an FBI agent, didn't give any details. And then I went to downtown San Diego and I sent money, but here's, here's also the other problem with that Western Union. When you transmit money in Western Union, you have, it can be picked up anywhere. So if I send it to Kenya, it could be picked up in France. All you have to have are the proper codes. So I worked with uh, an individual at Western Union. He retired from the FBI. I called him up, and I said, herein lies the problem. If I send this money, they could pick it up in Somalia, and then we'll never – our trap is not going to work. He said, this is what we're going to do. We are going to inhibit their ability to pick up that uh, ransom at any other – except for one location, and that is downtown Nairobi. And I said, that is a risk too. What happens if they go to multiple Western Union locations only to be turned away? Then they'll know what's up, and they'll go in and actually kill our victims. And at the time, given the fact that one of our victims was uh, having some medical issues, that was the best plan that we could come up with at that time. 
And I'll never forget, I will go down to downtown San Diego, I transmitted the $7,000, and we told them some money is coming. We didn't tell them all, just some. And they kept insisting how much, how much, how much. We hit send, and it just went. And then we uh, had the wife send an email. We just sent it and never disclosed the amount. But it goes back to their arrogance and their greed. I knew how, how arrogant they were. They were going to send someone to pick that money up. And I remember transmitting it on a Friday. A Saturday went by, I heard nothing. A Sunday heard, went by, I heard nothing. A month, and that was the most tense part, intense part of that hostage-taking investigation because I thought they had been killed because they went, they picked the money up, and they only got seven. And then they realized they'd been scammed, and they went in and killed the victims. Um, a who few days watching, later, who was watching the pickup location? We had the Kenyan police at that time, uh, and it, we got lucky because our FBI office in Nairobi had just opened, and I contacted the FBI agent on the ground, explained what was happening. So then he went to the Kenyan police, and the Kenyan police set up on the Western Union location. And the leader of the kidnapping ring had gone to multiple Western Union locations all around Nairobi, only to be turned away. And the excuse he was given was, it's such a large amount of money that you have to go to our central office. So he goes down to the central office, and that's where we got lucky again because he was the ringleader of the kidnapping ring. And he goes down, and then the, the police were not there at the time, but the employees at the Western Union were instructed, okay, if he shows up, delay, delay, delay. And they delayed long enough for the Kenyan police to show up, and they took him into custody and um, took him to, uh, uh, into another room and interrogated him for a number of hours. And then after he came out, he uh, got on his phone, and he called the individuals holding our victims at the location. There was a panic, and Nwanga was his name. He was a kidnapping leader. His, uh, his uh, associates panicked unchained all of our victims and keep in mind at this point in time we still didn't know we had a third victim we thought we only had two there was one victim that had been there for six months and they panicked they threw everybody in a car and started driving all around kenya all around nairobi all day long because they didn't know what to do their 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 boss was gone they couldn't do anything without him they didn't know what to do so it was for eight twelve hours they had no idea what to do and in the end they took the two san diego victims who were in their underwear, no clothes, and dropped them off in front of the embassy, the U.S. embassy, and they kept the third victim, who they knew we knew nothing about, and they drove him around. And as it turned out, they took him to a remote location, put him on his knees, and we are fairly confident they were going to execute him. And at that point in time, when our two San Diego victims got to the embassy, they started screaming, what about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? And we're like, who are you talking about? And at that point in time, the agent on the ground was very, very sharp, picked the phone up from the kidnapping leader and said, give me – and he dialed the associates who had had our third victim, called them up and said, I know what you're doing. I know what you're thinking, and if you do what I'm thinking you're going to do, we are going to hunt you to the end of the world. And at that point in time, they put our victim, our third victim, back in the car, drove him into town and dropped him off at a bar, and um, luckily – a good Samaritan saw this poor man sitting in his underwear at the bar, not knowing what to do. And he'd been in captivity for six months, so he didn't know who to trust. And this good Samaritan took him to the embassy, too. And then we recovered all three. Um, and then I flew out to Kenya. And the uh, the uh, kidnappers were all arrested, and they were all prosecuted. And I uh, actually went to Kenya to testify in Kenyan court. And then in that case, we were lucky because we recovered our victims. We got a ransom back. 
and we got a prosecution out of it as well. But in any kidnapping hostage case, you're only concerned about your victims. We got them back. So this was a big win. So one of the things that I saw that in that story that could have been potentially a problem is if they were watching the boss at the bank at the Western Absolutely. Union, right? Mm-hmm. And they saw Absolutely. and they saw the cops rush in. That could have been like if if they were doing any kind of counter surveillance, that could have been a big, big problem. There were a lot of, I'm going to tell you, a lot of things that nearly uh, resulted in this being a disaster. Not a lot, but a few. That is definitely one thing to be concerned about. But um, we were having the wives send and receive the emails from the kidnappers. They weren't coming from the FBI. We were monitoring, listening, and advising, and they coming up with an investigative strategy. And one of the wives sort of slipped up, and she forwarded a email that she'd received from an FBI agent and it went to the kidnappers and it said blank agent from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Luckily, it wasn't my my name, but that was a nearly a disaster. And they took our victims downstairs and they were about to kill them. And they said, what is this? Who is this blank person with the FBI? And you know what the leader said? Going back to that arrogance, he looked at them and he said, you know what? Here's the call the FBI. They can't help you. This is Kenya, not Chicago. And it was that arrogance that folded in. And luckily, we caught a break. And uh, they took them back upstairs and continued to torture them and, you know, make them take showers and defecate on themselves and, and urinate on themselves. But the whole picture is that was actually documented by A&E in, in, a, in a, um, a show called Kidnapped Abroad. And um, after that, it was it was uh, it got national level attention, actually international level attention. And they came to San Diego and interviewed me. So that's on my LinkedIn page if you're interested in looking at that. Yeah, definitely going to check that out. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to watch that. Um, have you thought about writing a book? You know what you're asking me? A lot of people ask me that. That's one of my many, many experiences. That was the first major case I ever worked. And I, every every time I tell my story, people tell me you need to write a book. Every part, and you're so yes, I have thought about it. Um, a few weeks ago, I went to this book signing event in LA. There was two LAPD officers who retired. And they wrote their own books. Yeah. And I walked up to them and I said, "What do I need to do? I don't even know where to start." And then one of the officers, the retired officer, had written his own book. He said, "You read my book, and after you're finished, you give me a call." So that's as far as I've gotten. So um, where I would tell you to start is write down three to five investigations that you worked on and you you can change name you can change names because you're the author you have the liberty to do that um you can even change dates and you can even change countries you can take any liberty that you want as long as the core of the story is true like you actually worked on it uh you could take any liberty to protect anybody you want to and uh but i but my suggestion is write down three to five of your investigations keep in the back of your mind that you can change any details that you need to give them each a title and then write down like three points on three bullets underneath this one uh was a kidnapping occurred in kenya and they were very arrogant and then and then you just expand on those three things and mm-hmm. you have the start of you have the 
the skeleton of your book. I could, I could totally help you with that. I, uh, I love helping people with stuff like that because uh, I just enjoy creating stuff and I would love to read it. I know you have a million stories that are probably amazing. Uh, that's a really good one. I loved it. And I'm definitely going to look it up. Uh, what's it called on a &E again? It's called Kidnapped Abroad Act 3. So they did a whole special on various kidnappings, you know, South America, Daniel Pearl in Pakistan. And then they uh, fused in this Kenya hostage taking case as well as Act 3. And it's the link is on my uh, my LinkedIn page. So you can just go there and you'll find it. I know that some countries. Um, now. I have a goal. I want to visit like 50 different countries, but I want to be smart about it, strategic. You know, um, I'm going to go to the touristy areas. I'm not going to go, you know, where you shouldn't be walking around. Do you know how many countries you've been to? You know, I am not really sure. Uh, I, I sort of lost count. But, you know, the, the main thing is when I worked that Kenya kidnapping case, it, it it got me interested in working overseas. It really did because I saw what it was like. You know, I traveled to Kenya, did the testifying and everything else. And then I saw what an FBI agent has to do to get something done. It's twice as difficult as in the United States. And I like that challenge and that working with foreign law enforcement officers and so on. So that really got me interested. That was my first overseas experience. But to answer your question, I've sort of lost count of all of the countries I've been to. I've been to every country in Europe, with the exception of Sweden. Um, I've been to Iraq, Afghanistan, was in Pakistan, all of um, the Balkan areas like Macedonia. I've been to Central Asia. I've been, I did a month in Russia as the acting FBI attaché. Uh, cool. So I've I've been been to quite a few places, and uh, I would literally have to sit down and make a list. I was gonna suggest countries. I was gonna suggest that you sit down. And you try to make a list of of uh, the different countries. Do you have a favorite, like a top three countries that you just, you love the culture? Because I, I went to Tokyo and I love Japan. I love the culture of Japan. <clears throat> um, I went to the Philippines. I went to two different parts. I went to Cebu, which was very tropical and lush and beautiful. And I went to Manila which had me a little depressed because there were so many homeless children walking around. So uh, do you have like a top three that popped into mind right now that either you were working or you were on vacation, you just loved the place? The one number one country that comes to mind is Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah, I oversaw the FBI's office in Switzerland for three and a half years. Cool. And that was cool. a unique experience because in most FBI overseas offices, of which there are 64, you have between five and 10 agents, like Mexico City. You have 10 FBI agents there, intelligence analysts and everything else. But at this point, uh, I had enough experience where they trusted me to run my own office all by myself. So <laughs> I'm doing my own I'm doing my own analysis, and I'm basically my own boss. And there are only – I think it was the only FBI office overseas where they had only one agent. So I saw that as a challenge. And I was able to accomplish a lot. But to answer your question, why do I like Switzerland so much? Um, it's a diverse, unique culture. It's very well organized, and it's four cultures in one. You know, you're in Bern, Switzerland, which is the capital. They're speaking German. You could drive 20 miles away; they're speaking French. They speak Italian, and you see those that that blend of diversity in such a small, compact place. But the other part of it too is you could jump in your car and go eat dinner in France or Germany or Austria within you know a minimal amount of time. That's cool. Uh, but it, and then the, just the beauty. Let's not even talk about the beauty of Switzerland. It's unbelievably beautiful. 
Yeah, so you were there for all of their seasons because you were there for three years. Mm -hmm. Yes, I saw them all. And every season is unique, you know, whether it's winter. Winter's beautiful if you want to ski. The summer times are gorgeous, you know, with the lakes and the glacial lakes. And the falls are magnificent. Um, but it, it's a good time to be in Switzerland just about any time of the year. I and I was concerned. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I, I was a little concerned because I'd been in bigger countries like Athens. I was there for five years. And my concern was would I, would I really like Switzerland having been in Athens, which is a massive city. And that's my second favorite location, Greece. So Switzerland, Greece. But I took to it like the fish to water, even though Bern only has 160,000 people in it. It's a very beautiful city. And with the Swiss were phenomenal to work with, very detail-oriented, very efficient. And you pick the phone up in the middle of the night and say, hey, I need to get this done. And it wouldn't get done. And they would always follow up. So it was a very good experience for me. I really want to do Australia for my 50th birthday, um, like it's like the furthest place I could travel from New York though. <laughs> it's like a 30 to 36 hour flight. It's like three days of travel where you're just flying. Like I would probably stop on the West coast and just stay there for a couple of days and then continue on, or maybe Hawaii. Hawaii is one of my favorite places in the world. Um, but I definitely want to see New Zealand and Australia. Uh, that is an area I've not been to. They, I almost was selected to be the head of the office, uh, FBI's office in New Zealand, and then I got burned instead. So I, I lost my opportunity to go to New Zealand, but that's a part of the world I have not been to yet. Okay, yeah, that's like, for, for me, coming from New York, it's like the furthest place I can travel in the world. <laughs> yeah, that is a, that's a long ride. It that is. is a long ride. It is, it is. Um I haven't been, I, you know, like I said, I did a little bit of Asia. I like South America, Mexico. I've done a few times in, throughout the years, but Mexico scares me right now. Like of, I, I, I feel like Mexico scares me more than the Middle East. You know, I'll tell you the truth, even retired, I'm not going to Mexico. I'll be honest. And when I was in San Diego as a new agent, we were banned from going down there because the cartels had a bounty on agents. Not just FBI, but DEA, Homeland, the whole. And so I'm just a little hesitant to go to Mexico. I'm very concerned about it until things settle out and become more safe. I thought that uh, U.S. agents were kind of off, you know, no touch. I, I thought that there was like that policy was still in effect because they didn't want the heat. You know, I, I wouldn't put anything past them. You know, we operate. I have not operated in Mexico. But across the board, no matter where you are, you operate as if you're always under threat. You're always being followed. And any day could be your last. You have to operate that way. Um, and so the same holds true in Mexico City, high threat post. My most recent um, tour was in Pakistan. And that was you turned every corner. You always watching your back, and, you know, because you never knew when someone was intent on, on attacking you for who you are and who you worked for. And I was going to say, though, as, as a civilian just traveling, I'm sure even in Pakistan, there's touristy areas, right? There are, but you have to be very, very careful, like K2, the mountain areas. And I'll be honest with you, Pakistan has more beautiful lakes and mountains or as beautiful as Switzerland. But the problem is going there as an American is a real, real uh, um, risk. And then in some of the tribal areas, you still have Al-Qaeda up there. You have ISIS Khorasan. You have ISIS Pakistan. 
And you have to be very, very careful. And there are a number of the terrorist groups that operate there as well. Um, when I was there, there's literally a terrorist attacker shooting there every day uh, by various terrorist groups. So yeah, uh, so I, I put like I'd love to go to Israel. I, I just put Israel and Pakistan up there as countries that you know I may not get to see unless um, you know unless the violence kind of dies down a little bit. Uh, with Mexico, though, I feel like the touristy, like Cabo and Cancun, I feel like those areas are still relatively safe. As long as you're not going off the resort and looking to buy cocaine, I think you're okay. I think you're, I think you're okay. And if you do go off the resort, don't speak English. Just pretend like, you know, you're from there. You know, I think you and I could probably blend in a little bit better down there, but some can't, but just keep your mouth shut. But I, I would have no desire to go off the reservation anyway. But, do you uh, speak any yeah, other languages? I speak a little Greek. And uh, that I, by virtue of being in Greece, I took six months of intense Greek. My Greek is much better than my German. And that's actually a funny story too. So in preparation for my tour in Switzerland, they speak four languages that I mentioned. Yeah. And the FBI asked me, which language do you prefer to learn? And I said, well, German, because if I can learn Greek, German should be easy, right? Boy, was I wrong. So six months of intense German, one-on-one, it was exhausting. And here's the other point. I didn't know that Swiss German and what we, they call Hochdeutsch, High German, are distinctly different languages. So when I arrive in Bern, having had this extensive FBI paid for German language training, I landed and I'm speaking German when they're speaking Swiss German. And when they were speaking, what's more, I couldn't even understand what they were saying. So, I, I, so in short, I wasted my time Wasted some money. You know, I can read road signs and 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 uh, you know menus and various other things. But, but in Switzerland, you... in Switzerland, don't most of the citizens also speak English? Yes, and that's what saved me. And even when I tried to speak the German, they taught me in the FBI. They would immediately switch to English because they have their own dialect. So in hindsight, I should have done French because I'd studied high school French, and I think it would have been an easier transition. And then it dawned on me after I started learning German that Greek is an ancient, simplistic language. One word can mean an entire sentence, whereas you have all these conjugations in German and everything else. It's a much more complex language. It was a, it was a major challenge. It was definitely a major challenge learning German, but I'm glad I got to do it. Um, I wasn't able to communicate to the extent that I wanted, but more so, I was really hoping to improve my German uh, after spending three and a half years in Switzerland, but that never happened because everyone spoke English to me. So, In uh, the interest of time, I, I want to bring you back on to tell a couple more of your stories, but I'm going to finish up with my last five questions for you. I'll just hit you rapid fire. Um, like I said, thank you for your years of service, but if anyone can define what a hero is, can you tell me your definition of a hero? Yes. A hero is someone who has empathy, and a hero is someone who puts themselves in another person's shoes to understand their point of view. A hero leads from the front and leads by example, and a hero has ethics, morals, and values. And more importantly, a hero does not forget where they came from. And when you're starting to feel stressed out and uh, you need to like just slow things down a little bit, how do you save yourself? A couple of things that calm me down the most. I love to run. 
Nothing calms me more than going on a nice long run. The other thing that calms me down equally as much is cooking. I love to cook. And I was partially raised by my grandmother, you know, you know, when I was five years old after my mother passed. And she was a very influential woman. And she told me, you know, most men can't even boil water. Boil water. You're not going to be one of them. So she taught me how to cook. And that's been my passion since I was a little boy. I was always, you know, experimenting with different recipes. And that's my thing. That's what de-stresses me, cooking and running. Would you ever consider uh, coaching other people as a additional stream of income? Yes, I would. Awesome. All right. We got to get that book written. And that uh, book. <laughs> what's, what's your power today? What's your best strength, your best ability? My best ability, um, I would say, and I kind of learned this when I was, in, and it's gone through, gone with me throughout my entire life, um, uh, leadership. It, it's something that, you know, I had when I was a young man, I developed into the Boy Scouts. I developed when I was in the military, and I love to lead other people, lead by example, and not just leading, but managing and being empathetic and not being this that person that uses that uh, directing sort of leadership style, but coaching and supporting, you know, leading and managing people invo involves multiple different styles. When and you I were, when you were in the military, did you have a rank or were you a special agent in charge? In the military, uh, I was a uh, lieutenant. That was the highest rank. So I started out, I was commissioned as an officer after I graduated college in 1988, uh, 1992, excuse me. And then I went straight to the fleet, Norfolk, Virginia. And then I got out in 1998 as a lieutenant and then transitioned to the FBI afterwards. And uh, when you retired from the FBI, uh, what did you retire as? I retired as a GS-15 supervisory special agent. And also I had two titles. So supervisory special agent. But when you're overseas, your title is called legal attache or legat for short. That's cool. And uh, my last question for you, because I respect your time and I really appreciate you hopping on today. Uh, just for fun, if you had a comic book power, comic book superpower, what would it be and why? Comic book superpower and why? Remain calm. Always remain calm. Because being calm, not only is it a de-stressor, it keeps you safe and alive by keeping your head. Calm is a superpower. I read that somewhere. All right. All right. I, I respect it. For me, I want all powers of the mind. I want telepathy. I want to, uh, what's it called when you move things? Telekinesis. I want telekinesis. Yeah, yeah. I, want, uh, I, I want the ability to set things on fire or just like put things out with my mind. Oh. I, I just want all the powers of the mind be able to, uh, you know, do inception and like put memories in people or remove memories if I choose to, you know, and just like whisper into people's minds, <laughs> all the powers you, of the mind. You have a lot of superpowers you want. I've just a few here and there, but uh, those are impressive. Invisible, being invisible would be a good one, I suppose too, but. Yeah, definitely as an agent. Brother, thank yeah. you. So, thank you so much. It's been fun. Um, I look forward to part two. And All right. All right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story. 
And I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith1. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.